Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Welcome to Rev Church. As Chelsea said, where else would you rather be on? Yes, that actually was the back's fault, not mine. Um, so, it is great to see so many new faces, so many faces that we haven't seen for a while. Um, so, I'm not actually sure how many people can relate to this, but how many of you have designed a bridge? Not many. Okay, so I'm not that relatable, but my job actually is uh, engineer. I help out at the uh, youth team on a Friday night with my wife, but my nine to five on a Monday to Friday is an engineer, which means that I work alongside some incredibly intelligent people that have recently designed a bridge. And a part of that, though, is these smart structural engineers that design how much concrete you need, how much Rio goes into this bridge and its structure. Before they get started, they have to come to us lowly geotech engineers and ask about the foundation of what the bridge is going to be on. And what we need to provide them is a bearing capacity. A bearing capacity is the strength of the soil, the dirt, the sand, gravel, or hopefully rock for a um, bridge. And we provide a bearing capacity of how it will stand up. But we also provide another number, and that number is called the factor of safety. The factor of safety comes along to make the design as robust as possible, to mean that if there's anything that is miscalculated in what the soil strength is, if there's any change in season, if there's an earthquake, there's a factor of safety involved in the design. So when things change, if things move, if things aren't as good as what we saw initially, the design still holds up. Now, the past two weeks, uh, for those that haven't been here, Nate's been speaking about Proverbs. Proverbs, the book of wisdom in the Bible. And he said that Proverbs is not a book of promises, but a book of probability. And I wonder how that probability relates to the factor of safety that we place on our own lives. Do we live with a factor of safety that relies on our own knowledge, relies on our own experience? Because I tell you, that's only a small factor of safety. We can increase it a little bit by listening to elder people, people that have gone through more than what we've ever gone to, and make our factor of safety a little bit better. Or we can do what we've been doing the past two weeks at church, and many of us have been doing by reading the Proverbs and increasing our factor of safety greatly by not relying on our own knowledge, not relying on the knowledge of other humans, but relying on the wisdom of God. So I want to encourage you today, let's, let's be a church that lives with a factor of safety that is built on what God tells us. The creator of who we are. He knows our purpose. He knows how we're meant to live. So when we rely on his wisdom, our factor of safety is at its best. Easy. Well, actually, I've got to put it down because today we're actually talking about wisdom about money. Wisdom about our finances. And this is a tough, difficult topic. Um, I'm sure many of our regulars are no surprise that um, Nate, our lead pastor, is sitting down while we're talking about money and asked someone else to come up and talk about it. Because it can get awkward. It can get weird. 
But I want to ask you two questions that I need you to ponder as I speak this morning. How important is money to you? I want you to think of it like a power rankings. For those that follow sport, you'll know that there's a ladder about how many wins and losses you have. But journalists write about a power rankings where they say how valuable wins are and what teams are actually on top of the power rankings. Maybe they've beaten better teams than others. And it's a very subjective thing. And it's what we put value on most. So where does money rate in your power rankings of life? And the second question I want you to think about is what do you find it easiest to spend money on? Now, money's can be awkward. Talking about wealth, people get a bit strange about it. Some have a lot that they don't want to talk about. Some are embarrassed by not having much at all. But not only is it awkward, but it's becoming harder and harder to manage. As you ponder on those questions, I want to just remind you of the current financial situation our world, our country, our state is in. Now, inflation has rose 7.3% over the last quarter. Now, don't ask me what that actually means, but I can tell you that is the largest rise since 1990. Before I was born, we've never seen a quarter with a rise that big. And I don't know how that occurs, but I know that it results in making living harder when it comes to money. People with a mortgage would know that your interest rates have been increasing almost month after month. Many people that have never worried about mortgage stress before are entering it. Many people are not even sure how they'll pay off their next mortgage and also put food on the table. And then there's others that don't even own a home that see the climate and struggle to ever think how they'll be a homeowner themselves. This rate rise has also caused the cost of living to go through the roof. Groceries are now an extra $30 more per fortnight for a family and even more for some others as well. And the price of petrol is regularly over $2 a litre. How crazy is that? Right now, times are tough. Our world needs wisdom around finances. Our church needs wisdom around finances. I need wisdom around finances, and I'm sure you're sitting there thinking the same thing. Now, we're looking at the book of Proverbs. Unfortunately, this isn't a financial story about how you've got to get rich quick. Solomon doesn't provide information about the savings accounts to invest in or the hot stock at the moment, or for the very few in here, even the Powerball numbers to select. But what, <laughs> but what Solomon provides is the attitude that we should have around money and the value that we should place on it. Now, first and foremost, Solomon talks about the power ranking of our money. He makes it clear about the attitude that a righteous the attitude that a wise man and the attitude that a Christ follower has around money. And it is that money is not the most important thing in life. This sounds simple in theory. I know many of us know the saying of money will not buy us happiness. But remember, wisdom isn't about knowledge. It's how we apply that knowledge to our lives. 
So let's dive into some of the things that Solomon has to say. First and foremost, Solomon says, wisdom is better than wealth. Proverbs 3, 13 to 15. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compare, can compare to her. Now, it may be worth noting that our current financial um, system, a currency that we have in Australian dollars or stocks, is obviously not how Solomon dealt with money in his time. Scholars say that it was written even before there was a currency. People would trade in gold and rubies and jewels. It would be about the size, uh, how big your army is, what chariots you have, and how big your harvest is. That would make you rich. But regardless of what makes wealth wealth, Solomon says that wisdom is more precious than it. And I love how the book of Proverbs has no, in, no worry with self-promoting itself. It's the book about wisdom, and again and again, Solomon writes, or the writers of Proverbs write, that wisdom is the most important thing. Which I think is great, but no one else does, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, they self-promote itself. And the first thing that he says here is that wisdom is more valuable than the money in your bank account. Secondly, Proverbs tells us that righteousness and character is greater than any wealth that we can have. In Proverbs 11.4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Some other people say that character delivers from death. Money is not more valuable than righteousness because on the day of wrath, it cannot save you. It cannot save you in time of need. Some people think it can support you, but it is futile. It may leave you at any moment. And now the day of wrath. I read this and my immediate thought was the final day of judgment, right? When the world's ending and we're going to a new heaven and a new earth. But I was reading this week some of Tim Keller's stuff, and he has this to say about the day of wrath. The day of wrath is maybe not what you think. Modern readers look at this phrase and think judgment day. That's not what it's talking about. The day of wrath was a Hebrew term for a really, really, really bad day. A day of sorrow and grief. The day you get the news that someone you love most in this world is going to die or has died. It's the day you find out somebody you thought was your best friend or trusted companion has betrayed you in a major way. It's the day you are told you have a fatal disease. That's the day of wrath, a day of sorrow and grief. The day of wrath is when life kicks you in the teeth more than any other day. It's when things are at its hardest. And wisdom tells us that on those days, your money will count for nothing. But it's your righteousness, your right standing with God, or your character that will save you from death on those days. Righteousness and character is worth more than money. Thirdly on the list of Proverbs power rankings is relationships and love is more valuable than any riches. Proverbs 15, 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is 
than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Or as the version on the screen here, better is a bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than a steak with someone you hate. What a beautiful bit of poetry, right? And it got me thinking. I went out for steak the other week. We went to Gaucho's Argentinian Steakhouse, and I know what some people may be thinking. Must be nice, right? You're up here talking about money, and you've gone out for dinner and spent 60 bucks on a steak. Good on you, mate. But it got me thinking while I was there. This steak was delicious. There's no doubt about it. The salt, the butter, the sauce that goes with it is out of this well. But would I rather this steak than a bowl of vegetables with someone I love, my wife Megan? Or would I rather go to Gaucho's with someone that I hate, like Wendy Bird from the TV show Ozarks? <laughs> and do you know what? I think it checks out. Solomon's on to something. Vegetables with love, vegetables with relationships is more value than whatever money can buy when you're spending your time with people you dislike or who take life away from you. And I also think this relates to how we earn our money. In Proverbs 23.4, it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Now, there are many other Proverbs that if you've been reading through as a church, you'll know that Solomon says, the righteous man makes his wealth from working hard. This verse isn't telling us that we don't work hard to make our wealth, but it says that wisdom knows when's enough, enough. What sacrifices have you been making to become rich? We need to be wise enough not to toil too much and know when to desist. Especially when it turns out that you are not spending the time with the people you love. You are not building relationships where relationships need to be had. Or you are losing your character, losing your righteousness and losing your wisdom all for the sake of money. We need to know when enough is enough. And fourthly, Solomon says, the name of the Lord is more secure than any riches. If you look at your power rankings, the name of the Lord needs to be above any riches or money in your life. Proverbs 18, 11, or 10 and 11, sorry. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Our generosity is a form of worship. Each and every person, whether foolish or wise, righteous or wicked, are all made in the image of God. We have a mark of God on us. In Genesis 3, we're told that man was made in God's image. This is confirmed in Proverbs 22, 2 as well, where it says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. When we show generosity to others, when we show generosity to people in need, we are honouring God because we are honouring his image, who he created in his own image. Paul also adds this in Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Bit of an outlandish statement, but an interesting one, that our generosity could be towards an angel walking on this earth. If any of you grew up with Reno Elms as your father, you would have seen hundreds and hundreds of episodes about of touch by an angel. Now, I haven't checked all the theology behind those episodes, but countless times there's a poor man beggar and people bless them and it turns out that it's an angel. And Paul actually says here, that could be true. But whether you grasp that understanding or think that may be a little bit outlandish, remember that you could be blessing an angel, but the worst case scenario is your generosity is helping someone that is made in the very image of the God that we worship. And as far as the extent of our generosity goes, Jesus says it has no limit. He tells us in Luke 12, 33, Sell all your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. Whatever wealth we can find ourselves on earth is fleeting. It will not last forever. And with our generosity, we can trade that for treasures in heaven that will last eternity. Solomon says that the righteous man is made righteous because he's generous with the money he has to the needy. And the final proverb that I want to share today is the first time that wealth is mentioned in Proverbs. In Proverbs 3, 9 to 12, honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. To live wisely is to give your first fruits to honor God. Your first fruits represent more than just your wealth because the first fruits of the season are most valuable. If anyone follows the price of mangoes up in Queensland, you would know that the first box of mangoes goes for over 20 grand at an auction. The first box of the season, it's seen as most valuable. Where you could just go to Woolies now and what, buy a box of mangoes for 80, 90 bucks? (laughs) But the first fruits are most valuable because the farmer is not guaranteed that the rest of the season will continue. When you give up your first fruits, you are giving in faith that the Lord will continue to provide what is already provided. Remember the poor woman at the temple who gave two cents. And Jesus saw this lady give two cents next to many rich men that were giving abundantly, that were giving gifts of incredible value. But he said that that offering of two cents was more valuable than any of the luxury items that the rich person gave because the widow gave everything she had whilst others gave out of abundance. God doesn't want our leftovers or what we can afford to give. He wants a sacrifice He wants our faith, everything we have. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. The Christian way 
is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I do not want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. It means that God wants all of us. God wants us to sacrifice. We spoke about being generous to the poor. And this proverb isn't necessarily Solomon just repeating himself. But he's referencing another piece of scripture. Deuteronomy 26. This is the book of law. Here God instructs the Israelites to give of their first fruits to the temple as a tithe or offering. The Israelites are instructed to give their first fruits, which God has provided them. The idea that they'll give him back to God what they had received from him. Nathan Finocius puts it this way. Tithe is an expression of gratefulness for grace received. If you have something to give, that is because God has given it to you. When we accept the grace of God, our tithe to the temple, to our church, is merely just us giving back to God some of what we have already received. Now, this can be tricky for some understanding that we're handing over to our money to a church that we may no longer have control of. But this is how we honor God with our first fruits. And to get practical here, some people may be unsure about how to give or what to give. And for our regular church attenders who have accepted the grace of God already, I can tell you that the Lord, the Old Testament, tells us to give 10%. Tithe is 10%. Give 10% of what you have to the temple or church. But what is challenging is what Tim Keller has to say here. If you, by the way, decide you're going to give 10% of your income, congratulations. You have attained Old Testament standards. So congratulate yourself. If you go to the New Testament, here's what we see. Jesus Christ on the cross did not tithe his blood or his life. He gave it all. He sacrificed. That means the Old Testament rule of thumb is 10%. But the New Testament rule of thumb is to give away so much, there's a measurable sacrifice for how you live. You should be giving away so much of your money to ministry and to the poor that it makes a measurable difference in the vacations you take and the clothing you buy. If it's not making a measurable difference, you're not sacrificing enough. Look at what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Take that to the center of your life until your money becomes just money. Scatter your gifts and wait until you see how he works through that. Our giving is not measured by a number it's not measured by quantity, but by sacrifice. This means that what God has asked me to give, 
will be different to what he asks you to give or what he asks the person next to you to give. But let's be a church that strives after God's heart. And that means that we are only looking towards what God has asked us to give. It doesn't matter what anyone else is giving around you. And when your finances find the right place in the power rankings of your life, when God is number one and your purpose is set, your order is correct, there you'll find blessings of getting the most out of your life. This isn't legalism. This isn't giving out of compulsion. This is giving back from the gift that we have received, the gift of Christ, God's only Son, that died for our sins so that we may have life and life in all its fullness. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that, uh, for the sacrifice that you gave, that you were an example of what it means to live for others. You're an example of what it means to give away your riches so that the poor may become rich in relationship with Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray for, that you convict us this week, that you challenge us in how we view our money, how we spend our money, and how we sacrifice our money for others to show that you are number one in our lives. Lord, convict our hearts that we will find out that money is just money and that you provide abundantly more than whatever we need. Amen. Well, that's it. We got through it. I don't have to talk about money anymore. Uh, have a great week, everyone. Remember, December 18th, Carol's, I was going to say in the courtyard, but we don't. Maybe in here. Um, Jacob's organising something fantastic, so it's going to be fun. There will be lunch, so invite friends. Everyone loves a bit of carols and joy, and I think we'll talk about Advent next week instead of money and sacrifice, so that'll be good. Enjoy, everyone. <laughs>